A tablighi is on a mission. He wants you to become a good Muslim. If you ever come across one, the first thing he says is, Brother, come let's go pray in the mosque. Then he'll deliver a sermon on the virtues of simple life and the importance of faith. You'll get frustrated, but he'll persist. And when you think the conversation is finally over, he'll say this, Brother, shall we go to the mosque? The Dablihi Jama'at is a movement focused on proselytization. But what sets them apart is that if you're a Hindu or a Christian or a Jew or believe in any other religion, chances are a Dablihi won't bother you. His efforts are focused on fellow Muslims who have been distracted by worldly affairs. By Saad Hassan on TRT World. Welcome to the Politics of Pandemics, Episode 9, Society of Preachers, Part 2. I made an error in the previous episode talking about the Tablighi Jama'at. I equated their overall structure to the Evangelicals of Christianity, more a loose school of belief than an actual organization. This is not strictly true. The Tablighi Jama'at does have some form of organization, as you obviously need one to organize the massive gatherings and the jamas they are most known for. For a school so obsessed with ritual and doctrine, you'll need some keepers of the faith to keep everyone in line, and bases from which adherents can spring forth to evangelize and rest in houses of worship as per directed by their faith. And like any religious doctrine, they have factions, including a major division that occurred in 2018. The larger group of tablighs have a leader of sorts, Mullah Muhammad Saad Kandawi, the great-grandson of founder Muhammad Ilyas Kandawi. He resides in India and is someone we will talk more about in part 3. In the meantime, there are also individual headquarters in several regions across South Asia as well, each with their own leader, hierarchy, and are responsible for organizing their own gatherings as well. The massive Bangladesh Ijema, mentioned in part 1 with 5 million followers, is organized by that country's Tablighi group. And Pakistan has their own as well, headquarters in the region of Raiwind. Located just outside the city of Lahore in eastern Pakistan, they also hold a major annual Ijema, the second largest after the Bangladeshi gathering. It got so big, they had to split it up into two parts, one in November and one in March, and million people attend each of the gatherings every half year. You know where this is going. There was a major gathering in Raiwin on March 10 to 12 of 2020, just two weeks after the gathering in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. 250,000 adherents gathered for three days and caused the first major outbreak of COVID-19 in Pakistan. Again, another Muslim country had to grapple with the aftermath of the outbreak as they struggled to track trace and quarantine the mass of attendees and their close contacts. As mentioned in the previous episode, the Tablighi Jamaat was established in British India in the 1920s. When Pakistan split from the independent nation of India in 1947, the Tablighi members there set up a chapter in Raiwin. It is there 
that the W he truly exploded in numbers, becoming the largest chapter until the Bangladeshi chapter was set up when that country split from Pakistan in the 1970s. It is the Pakistan chapter that organizes the semi-annual Raiwan Ijima, where a million adherents gather every November and March. Men would gather, pray, eat together, and study, before fanning out once again to resume their evangelical activities across Pakistan and the world as per the doctrine of their faith. The Tablighi Jamaat has had a contentious relationship with the various governments in Pakistan, as well as the provincial power in Punjab, where Raiwin resides. The government has always had an antagonistic relationship with conservative clerics in the nation, and the Tablighi Jamaat is often caught in the middle of that struggle. Despite the sect's long-standing claim that they are agnostic on all political matters, the accusation of terrorism and extremism has plagued Tablighi members for decades internationally. The Tablighi has been linked to several terror attacks within and outside of Pakistan. In 2010, two mosques in Lahore, filled with worshippers belonging to a small Islamic sect called the Ahmadis, were attacked by seven gunmen. The Ahmadis are considered as a heretical sect by fundamentalist Muslims, and the coordinated attack killed over 80 and wounded at least 110. The Pakistani branch of the Taliban claimed responsibility for the attack, and in the days before the attack, according to the Minister of Law in Lahore, the attackers stayed with Tablighi Jama'at in Raiwit. It may have been these reasons that the Punjab government in 2016 banned the Tablighi Jama'at groups from preaching in educational institutions, a move supported by the Prime Minister at the time, Nawaz Sharif. Sharif's traditional power base was Raiwit, however, he was seen as trying to move in a more socially centrist direction with his third term in, as Prime Minister. Sharif's government made several moves that defied the conservative faction of Pakistan, including declaring the non-Muslim holidays of Diwali, Holi, and Easter as public holidays, pushing for measures to punish domestic violence, and openly defying demands by conservatives. To quote Sharif, Nation's future lies in democratic, liberal Pakistan, where the private sector thrives and no one is left behind. In line with his opposition to conservatism, Pakistan denied visas to international preachers attending the Tablighi gathering in 2017. Despite this, the gatherings continue to be held, and the Tablighi Jamaat has become an integral landscape of Islam in Pakistan. And as March 2020 approached, thousands were already gathered in Raiwin as the coronavirus pandemic was just starting to pick up. There were government warnings requesting a sect to cease the gathering, but without an official order from the Pakistani government, the Tablighi organizers were free to hold the event as scheduled. According to one of the event organizers, quote, the government asked us to cancel the gathering because of the coronavirus, but our elders and organizers decided that the gathering will proceed as planned. The organizers did curtail the event on Thursday, although rain was cited as cause, But by then, hundreds of thousands were already at Rywind, sleeping in tents and mosques in massive groups.
The Dublihi members weren't the only traveling pilgrims in the spotlight during this pandemic. The first cases of COVID-19 detected came from travelers returning from overseas. Pilgrims returning from Iran and Saudi Arabia made up many of the early cases in the country, including one of the first people to die from the virus in Pakistan. Quoting a BBC article, when 50-year-old Saadat Khan returned to his village outside the northern Pakistani city of Mardan from a pilgrimage in Saudi Arabia earlier this month, a feast was thrown in his honor. According to his son, Haknawaz, about 600 people attended. We cooked rice, meat, and chicken, he told the BBC. The, quote, whole village came and congratulated him, he added. Days later, Saadat would die from COVID-19, and the village would be placed under a strict lockdown. Like in Iran and Peru, Pakistan already had a struggling healthcare system coming into COVID-19. In 2018, the Lancet put Pakistan at 154th in terms of a ranking of all countries' accessibility and quality of healthcare. Pakistan is also one of the few countries where polio is still endemic, as well as other diseases that are often treatable with access to modern medicine or vaccines. While the healthcare system has seen significant improvements in recent decades thanks to both governmental and non-governmental organizations, it still has a long way to go by 2020. So Pakistan was obviously wary of the explosion of cases happening in neighboring Iran by February and early March, as more and more pilgrims were being tested positive for coronavirus. So Pakistan set up a camp in Taftan, one of the major border crossings between the two countries, and where many Shia pilgrims passed through to return home from Iran. The conditions, to say the least, were horrific. They were forced to stay in tents in random groups, kept in squalid conditions with no clue as to when they could leave. Hundreds who stayed in the tents became infected, even if they had returned from Iran with a negative test. There is an article in the Express Tribune where an activist, Marzia Akhlahi, relays the ordeal of Fatma and her adult children when they returned from Iran. Quote, The Tafnan camp was basically a tent colony, and at a point, there were around 6,000 people there, the majority of which were women and children. Extreme weather, dust, uncertainty, and misinformation and the absence of the most basic things needed for survival were all we had at the camp. Therein, we were kept in the dark, and we had no way of knowing how long our stay would be. The authorities kept telling us that we would be released the next day, but that next day never dawned. Later, we were told we would be released in one week. We were getting impatience in that unhygienic camp, and I needed to know the duration of our quarantine so I could decide what to do. I had damaged my bladder since I had been avoiding using the washroom because there was only one toilet available for 400 women. At the camp, other than temperature checks, no other test was carried out. Fatima alleges that those with pilgrim visas who, like her, are of the Hazara minority ethnic group and practice Shia were quarantined while non-pilgrims were let through. The negative tests from Iran were ignored outright, while Fatima and her daughter were let out after three weeks in various squalid quarantine centers Fatima's 22-year-old son was shuffled to another hospital where he was only released after a total of 43 days in quarantine. Within Pakistan, there was less of an alarm though. On the first day of the Tablighi gathering on March 10th, only 16 cases of COVID-19 were officially announced. 
though authorities and healthcare experts readily admitted testing was severely lackluster. Despite quarantine camps and other international restrictions already in place, the gathering had about 3,000 international attendees from some 40 countries. And like with the Malaysian cluster, it took a few weeks before authorities realized something was very wrong. One week after the Tabli, Pakistan was suddenly experiencing over 100 positive cases daily, exponentially increasing the number of active cases. Many of these initial cases were still traced back to pilgrims from outside countries and their close contacts, but more and more began to be traced back to Raiwind. Provincial, inconsistent quarantines were set up by local governments in response to these new outbreaks, and Pakistani authorities began to track down the attendees of the Raiwind at Jima. The Malaysians had the Herculean task of tracking down 16,500 attendees of the gathering in Kuala Lumpur as well as their close contacts. The Punjab Special Branch claimed that between 70 and 80,000 people attended the Raiwing gathering. The organizers themselves gave the number of 250,000. Even though the planned events were shortened, there were still a lot of people, and worse, there were no records of who attended the event. By April 7th, only 20,000 were actually identified. When the authorities were able to trace any attendees, the Tablighi faithful were quarantined. Some of them were locked in the Marcus itself, including many of the international visitors now trapped in Pakistan due to the lack of flights in and out of the country. Several thousand were forced into lockdown in other provinces, with new cases being detected out in the wild and traced back to Raiwind. But cases kept increasing, and not just from the gathering or the pilgrims. According to data released on April 6, 60% of the cases by that time either came from pilgrims returning primarily from Iran or from the gathering. It wasn't just the difficulty of tracking the attendees. Pakistan had only conducted 17,000 COVID tests by April 5th. On a per capita basis, this was the third slowest testing rate in the world behind India and Indonesia at 68 tests per million people, without testing to quote WHO Director General Tedros Adnahum Kevreyesus, it's like flying blind. There were alarming signs that the virus was endemic. For example, some 200 members were tested in Hyderabad on March 29th, and 128 were found positive. With no choice and at risk of breaking Pakistan's already fragile healthcare system, the country began to shut down. Even this was not done swiftly or uniformly, as individual provinces often made decisions to implement limited lockdowns before the national government did. Part of this is the fear of religious backlash, to quote Hussein Haqqani, a former Pakistan ambassador to the US and now a member of the Hudson Institute. Quote, religious sentiment is so dominant in Pakistan that the government prefers to invoke it in its favor rather than confronting it even when it threatens the country's security or the people's health. Another part, however, was the disconnect between local provinces and Prime Minister Imran Khan. While Khan cited the economic angle as a reason against lockdown, 
There was a view that he was reluctant to do so due to that fear of religious conservatives in the country, for whom Friday prayers and mosque worship were very important. I'm going to quote Yaqub al-Hassan, an Indian analyst writing for the Manaha Parakar Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis. In Pakistan, both the political and religious leaders were locked in an eternal squabble over the issue. This competition has, more often than not, pitted the state and the ulema against each other in the public square. If the past is any guide, the threat of street protests issued by the ulama could have been a disturbing prospect for the government, as it would have weakened its efforts at combating COVID-19, given the street power that the religious groups command. Individual cities and provinces would implement their own lockdown measures. Several eastern provinces, including the ones that contained Pakistan's largest cities, went into lockdown on March 24th. The capital of Islamabad went into quarantine on March 25th. Prime Minister Imran Khan initially resisted expanding the measures nationwide, but in the end, the government was forced to on April 1st, reinforced by the military which the religious clergy were less likely to defy. Raiwan itself went into complete lockdown on April 2nd. According to a report published by late April of 2020, at least 2,258 attendees of the Raiwan at Jema had been confirmed positive of COVID-19 about 20% of the official tally. The actual number is surely higher. Some of the foreign pilgrims who attended managed to bring the virus out of Pakistan, with two men who entered Gaza from Egypt testing positive. There was plenty of blame to go around. Pakistan's science and technology minister, Fawad Chaudhry, blamed, quote, the stubbornness of the clergy for allowing the gatherings to proceed, saying, we were very concerned that Tablighi Jama'at refused to limit the congregation, so they are responsible. The religious clergy's regressive opinions are what led to this catastrophe. Supporters, on the other hand, blame unclear instructions by the government, and that the government itself is fundamentally at fault for failing to contain the pandemic or set up the infrastructure necessary to counter its ill effects. Unfortunately, while cases were still increasing rapidly in Pakistani communities, the lockdowns did not last long. The pressure from religious faithful was one of the key factors, making it difficult to enforce lockdown measures, especially when it came to houses of worship. In an incident in early April, police tried to stop Friday prayers at a mosque at Karachi province and were met with a mob of worshippers literally chasing their vehicle away. In the end, mosque worship was allowed in late April in conjunction with the holy month of Ramadan, with preventative measures applied. As a whole, Pakistan exited the nationwide lockdown on May 9th. As one would expect, cases for this first wave peaked in early June. By then, cases as a result of the Tablighi cluster had melted into the overall sea of cases, reaching 100,000 total cases by June 9th in the country. By June 17th, every single district in Pakistan has had at least one case of COVID-19. The disruption in livelihoods caused widespread unemployment thanks to disruption in exports and other work. On the healthcare front, there was such a severe shortage of protective equipment that in early April, 
Over 100 doctors protested on the streets about the conditions they had to work under. They were beaten back with batons and dozens were arrested. And this is where we pause for Pakistan as the first wave of coronavirus fades in August 2020. News and information on the Tablighi Jama'at had mostly faded by then and I did not find much written about the Tablighi after that first wave. Like in Malaysia, it seems the Tablighi organizers mostly escaped consequence. This silence may not have been unexpected. To quote again from Yaqub al-Hassan, Naming and shaming the Tablighi Jama'at could invite the anger of the right-wing elements in the society, including within the government, as also within the army. But, if I am wrong, I will include that in the next Pakistan-related episode. Unfortunately, we cannot say the same for India, where there was another Tablighi Jama'at gathering. But while Pakistan and Malaysia's Muslim minorities probably softened the backlash as a result of their COVID clusters, the Tablighi Jama'at and the Muslim population in India as a whole suffered severe consequences as a result of the growing Islamophobia in the country. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. For correspondence and corrections, please message me on Twitter at PolyPandemicPod. If I can make this podcast work, I would like to hear from you. Your story of dealing with this pandemic, and if you have any suggestions for future topics you would like me to look into. I apologize once again for any mistakes, truncations, and errors I may have in the preceding episode. And as always, if you can, get yourself and everyone you know vaccinated, wear a mask if you can, and always watch your